Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us today. My guest today is Scott B., a close friend and AA brother for over 30 years. Scott's remarkable story is one that proves that you can never be too smart nor too important to get sober in AA. With his Ph.D. in neurobiology and an accelerating career in medical research, Scott thought that his intelligence, ego, and iron will could shield him from alcoholism and addiction. But his journey into the dark regions of substance abuse brought him to his knees as a ravaged and demoralized subject of king alcohol and lady cocaine. As increasing use quickened the downward spiral of his life and career, intelligence and willpower alone were not enough to save him. As he was heading towards the abyss, a single lifeline in the form of a crafty intervention by his colleagues and friends was thrown to him. Clinging on as only the hopeless can, he finally let that lifeline pull him into treatment and ultimately into AA. After nearly 33 years of sobriety, Scott reflects on that crucial turning point that grew into a brilliant career, a fulfilling life, and daily service to others. His wondrous story is one that needs to be told. More importantly, it's one that needs to be heard by anyone, anywhere, who reaches out for help. I'm thrilled to welcome my very good friend, Scott B., to AA Recovery Interviews. My name is Scott, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Scott. I'm so glad you joined us today here on uh, AA Recovery Interviews. You and I go back a long time. Um, we do, Howard. Uh, We're uh, the class of 88, and uh, that's right. I follow you by a couple months. You're the dean of the class of 88, and I'm always, always proud to be two months behind you. Well, I, I love it when you and I are in meetings together and we kind of take stock of how many of the class of 88 are in the meeting with us. And I think we've had as many as a total of seven of us in one meeting at, at a time, which is really amazing. But I think we go to so many meetings, uh, the same meetings together that we see each other several times a week. I think we first met, if I'm not mistaken, we first met at an AA retreat back in about 89 or 90, maybe 91, something along those lines. You were going to retreats all the time, weren't you? I was going to at least two a year. Uh, mm -hmm. And I tried to go to the ones where Francis Yeager was at. And mm -hmm. uh, I was a member. My home group at the time was the Alder Street men's group on Monday right. night. Yeah, I remember I remember that meeting. That was. Uh, I didn't go to it all that often, but I do remember it had it had some of the icons yes. of our local yeah. AA yeah. in there. For for those listeners who may be not aware of or familiar with what an AA retreat is, how if you were telling somebody about it in a little elevator speech, what would you say what a what a retreat is about? Well, Howard, it's a two and a half day gathering of the fellowship where mm -hmm. 72 men come together in a beautiful location. Mm -hmm. And the format is lots of fellowship, meals together, lots of time to talk with each other. Mm -hmm. There's space to do step work. But the official format is covering each of the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. um, on the Friday night, we cover one, two, and three. On Saturday morning, we cover uh, four, five, Saturday afternoon, six and seven, eight and nine. Then we finish 10 in the evening. And then on Sunday morning, in a beautiful way, we do 11 and 12. That's right. And, and uh, you know, I've been to a retreat virtually every single year since I've been sober. So I've been to more than 30 of them over the years, not quite as many as you have. But that Saturday is especially uh, a good day because there's a break in between yes. steps four and five and six and seven of about three hours for people to work on their fourth and fifth steps. And that's that's an important, important thing to do. So I, I always recommend to guys I sponsor and other people that they go to a retreat. It's a good way to get a lot of AA at one time. It's a great way to kind of recharge a program that needs a little bit of recharging and is about as close, Scott, as living within Alcoholics Anonymous 
for 48 hours. I've always fantasized about how great it would be if all of life felt like an AA meeting. Well, when you're on a retreat, it feels that way, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I'll give a little ad. I believe the next men's retreat at Holy Name is February 3rd. Uh-huh. And I'm already yeah. signed up for it. Yeah, that's a very popular one uh, every year. Start the year that way. Right. So you've been sober. Your sobriety date is? March 1st, 1988. And that's March 1st because it was a February 29th of that year that you got actually sober? How did that work out? Yeah, my intervention was on February 29th, 1988, which is a leap year day. Hmm. And um, I had actually used the day before. I was sober um, mm-hmm. that morning, um, and my intervention occurred a little after 1 o'clock on the 29th. Mm-hmm. But mm. after I got to treatment, um, I was resistant to even calling myself an alcoholic for a while. So I, I didn't necessarily lean on a particular sobriety date. Mm-hmm. But after I was there a while and had gone to a lot of meetings where men announced their sobriety dates, mm-hmm. I officially adopted March 1st so I could celebrate every year instead of every four years. So. One of the great things about having a birthday, because mine is January 1st, but one of the great things about having a birthday on the first of the month is that by the time the birthday meeting of the month rolls around, usually it's the last meeting of the month, I've only got 11 months to go until my next birthday. It makes makes for a a very interesting uh, uh, calendar. Yeah, and and if if you have an ego like mine, Uh you get to, uh, if I go to... Uh, four meetings a week times four weeks, I get to announce myself and hear applause 16 different times. Yeah, I, I, I know what that's <laughs> like, especially when you go to a club meeting and they're asking every day, does yes. anybody have a birthday? Yeah. You get clapped for a lot. So your sobriety date is March 1st of 88. Um, I, I always like to kind of to get a perspective to look at the backstory a little bit, what it was like for you, just kind of briefly, growing up and 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 the trajectory towards drinking and uh, other things, and then the point at which the turning point for getting sober and the realization. Uh, could you kind of give us a, a picture of what that looks like for you? I'd be <clears throat> be glad to. Um, before I start, I, I, yeah. I have a tradition, and I, I, I say, God, help me put my ego aside and be with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That's beautiful. I, I would say amen to that. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, I was born in 1943 um, in the mm-hmm. middle of the war in a small town in Ohio. I'm the grandson and the son of a physician. Um, Mm -hmm. My mother has a PhD in sociology, I should say, had. Uh, Mm -hmm. Very shortly after I was born, my father left and spent two years in the service in the Pacific Uh as a medic. Uh, Uh Very traumatic experiences for him. Traumatic for me as well, because I had no father for two years. Hmm. During that period of time, my mother was depressed. I think she surrogated me a bit. I felt Mm -hmm. alone and lonely as a child. I invented an imaginary friend called Bobby. Mm -hmm. And um, when my father came home, um, it wasn't like I felt like I was alienated to him, but Mm -hmm. um, he was an incredible man. He's my hero and will be forever and ever and ever. Kindest man Mm -hmm. in the world, great doctor. Mm-hmm. But he was um, not an emotional person. And yeah. I think the war and what he saw in the Pacific going from island to island to island mm-hmm. um, created a, a space for him that he was a bit standoffish. So mm-hmm. um, we never had issues um, until he died in 1970. But um, I never felt particularly close to him. And so that distance from my father and then my mother 
in her early depression, started medicating mm. her depression with both medicine and and alcohol. And mm-hmm. by the time she died, she was a, a full-blown addict and alcoholic and mm. um, just not available for uh, any kind of mother-son interaction. Um, mm. Was was your father aware of all that going on at the time? Uh, yes, and in the mm-hmm. in the fifties and the late forties, um, there was even though this was Elyria, Ohio, it's about an hour from Akron, the home of AA. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, he was treating my mother with medication, and we had mm-hmm. a medicine chest that, if you opened it up, pill bottles literally spilled out, and these were. Uh, these were pre-Valium tranquilizers. These were um, mm-hmm. opiates. Um, mm-hmm. And my mother did a lot of napping. Um, let's just mm-hmm. put it that way. And wow. my father was an obstetrician gynecologist, and he was out of the house by 6 in the morning and rarely home before 8. And he played golf on the weekends and watched footballs on Sunday. So I just never felt close. Um, and I... Mm. And uh, to jump ahead a little bit, after I got sober, I was in a psychodrama group mm-hmm. doing a piece of psychodrama and where I had chosen someone to be my mother and chosen someone to be my father. And I was stuck mm-hmm. during the middle of the psychodrama. And the director said, Scott, what do you really want from your parents? Mm-hmm. And I started crying and I said, I want both my mother and my father to come to me and get down on their knees and give me a hug. Mm. And that, and then yeah. I just slung snot all over the, the room. Um, yeah, that's powerful stuff. I, I did psycho, the same thing that you did. We, we, we did it uh, a few years apart, but that's powerful to get to that realization all those years later, but nonetheless. So the result of this childhood gave me um, uh, in a pretty intense fear of abandonment, and sure. uh, inventing an imaginary friend was not was not a very adequate solution. So, mm-hmm. I began to adopt behaviors: wearing masks, being the good boy. Um, mm-hmm. I got all A's through elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, things at home with my mother were getting pretty dark, and mm-hmm. uh, fortunately for me, my parents sent me to private boarding school in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, That helped a lot. I, during vacations, I would often not come home. I would go to somebody else's house. I really was avoiding Mm. um, what was going on at home because the alcoholism in my mother was getting worse. And um, my father was deeply concerned, but couldn't do much about it. And um, in boarding school, I grew up a lot. Uh, I was Uh around a lot of older boys who Mm -hmm. uh, introduced me to uh, other substances, uh, introduced Mm -hmm. me to my first sexual experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was an incredibly important academic experience for me. Mm -hmm. And it really Mm -hmm. set me up to be successful in college. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, when I went to university, Syracuse University, I I, uh, immediately joined the SAE fraternity, and I'm sure part part of my alcoholism sort of increased when I became a uh, an SAE in college. And mm-hmm. by the time I graduated college, uh, the it was the height of the Vietnam War. I had um, impregnated my pinmate, who was mm-hmm. a Kappa Alpha Theta, and I had we had gotten married in 1964. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, you were still in college, so I was or? still in college, and we both still actually college. finished college and got advanced degrees. Um, oh and had a very successful marriage, uh, two great kids, which I'm still very close to. Um, mm-hmm. But because of our our marriage, and because of the fact that I went on to graduate school to get mm-hmm. a doctorate in in um, neurobiology, uh, mm-hmm. I was exempt from the war. So hmm. um, that was a wonderful time. We did a lot of a lot of commitment to social obligations. I remember hmm. being um, coming home at night out of the laboratory and saying, "What are we doing tonight? Are we marching for civil rights? Are we marching for <laughs> for women's rights? Or are we marching uh, for anti-war?" And were you a hippie? Were you a hippie back then, Scott? 
No, I was pretty cleaned up. I had been a preppy, yeah. and I'm still a preppy. Once still you're a preppy, preppy or, you know, um, <laughs> it's khakis and, and button-down Oxford cloth shirts and penny loafers. But is it is it safe to say that that you learned to drink at prep school, and you perfected the art uh, in college and graduate school? Absolutely right on, Howard. Correct. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, when I finished my doctorate, um, mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to do a postdoctoral fellowship at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And I took that opportunity and my whole family moved to Santa Monica, where um, I really got serious about my career in medical research um, and mm-hmm. had a wonderful four years there. Um, mm. And at the end of my fellowship, um, I was offered an opportunity to stay at UCLA or I was recruited by a number of other institutions. Uh, mm. I chose Baylor College of Medicine because they offered me an opportunity to to begin as a leader in forming a research group in the ophthalmology mm-hmm. department. And uh, mm-hmm. at the time, I was studying the retina of the eye, which is a slice sure. of the central nervous system, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I chose Baylor, and we all moved here in 1973. And... Um, I was divorced shortly thereafter. So that brought you that brought you to Houston. Correct. During the during the time that you were out at UCLA, it, it sounds like maybe the alcohol and, and whatever other things you were doing were put on hold, or, or were they toned down, or were they were they intruding on your daily life back then? Um, I was acting out rarely. Um, mm-hmm. I would um, drink when we had lab parties. Um, Mm -hmm. I began philandering on my wife. Um, I I was working very hard, very often in by 7 a.m. and not home until 10 p.m. I really was focused on my career, and I was fortunate enough to begin some work that gained national attention, and which is why I got recruited to Baylor. And then at Baylor, I got very serious and formed a lab and was gifted with getting a, a number of grants, a big NIH mm-hmm. grant, a, what's called mm-hmm. a career development fellowship. And sure. um, so by the end of the 70s, I was at the pinnacle of my career. Huh. I was divorced by about two years. Uh-huh. And I just had the strongest urge, Howard, to, to take a break, to celebrate. Yeah. So I began um, dating a, a hot little redhead, and I began uh-huh. spending my afternoons not in the laboratory, but at live music happy hours. And it, mm-hmm. eventually, a year or so later, I was introduced to cocaine yeah. uh, at a party of where I thought everybody was hip, slick, and cool, and cocaine lines appeared on a mirror and I was offered a straw and I did my first line of cocaine in 1980. And what I remember about that moment is I said, oh my God, what is this? Where can I get more? And who brought this and how can I make them my best friend? Yeah, yeah, I get that. That's that's a typical uh, a typical response to the first time during those years in which you weren't doing this up to the point that you were. I'm sure there are going to be people who hear this and think that maybe that commitment to to school and to ambition and to establishing yourself in the world is sufficient to keep alcoholism or drug addiction at bay. Would you would you say that that was what happened for you, or was it just a decision that you made? or you just hadn't warmed up to it yet? No, the alcoholism and the addiction and the fear of abandonment and the people-pleasing and the mask-wearing was all going on. Hmm. It was going on in the background. Yeah. And uh, But my hard work in the laboratory and gaining some fame and fortune was merely an outside solution to medicate an inside job. That's not a solution. I didn't stop drinking. I didn't mm-hmm. stop philandering. Um, mm-hmm. I just sort of toned them down. And I was actually very fulfilled by my success um, mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. I wasn't. Did that success and all of the things you did academically and intellectually within you, did they dispel the idea that might have been lurking that 
this is something I probably shouldn't be doing, or this is something I'm going to be starting to have a problem with? I actually never thought I had a problem with alcohol mm-hmm. until the day of my intervention, until they wow. told me that not only did I have a cocaine problem, but I had an alcohol problem. Were you too, were you too smart for it, or, or, or what? What was going on there? Well, it's ego. I thought, you know, yeah. it's not really that bad. And, you know, I'd been severely drunk. And as an SAE, it was standard to find yourself uh, sure. in a cold shower on Sunday morning after a three-day alcohol binge. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was drinking like an alcoholic and just denying it that it was a problem. So That's that's common, though. You, uh, I mean, I've noticed it over the years. I'm sure you have, too, that we one of the sayings is, you're never too dumb for AA, but you might be too smart for it. Uh, I know it was that way for me just because I thought I'm a, I'm a bright guy. I've got willpower. I, I know what I'm doing and what I'm doing is drugs and alcohols. But but at least I know I'm doing that. And, and the, the knowledge of the fact that I'm doing it means that I will be able to use that same intellect to stop it if I need to. And when you're, I had a huge ego because of my scientific success. Sure. And therefore I was, I was my own higher power and I was in control of -hmm. everything in my life. So. Hmm. Hmm. So, so you, you got into the cocaine at the end of the uh, seventies to coincide with the divorce. Uh, A couple of years after the divorce, Mm -hmm. about 1980 and, and, And I chased Lady Cocaine um, and increased my hedonistic behavior um, Mm -hmm. for the next eight years until I I was deeply in debt. Mm -hmm. I was uh, I had seven warrants for my arrest. By the time of Mm -hmm. my intervention, I had Mm -hmm. three banks were suing me for money I had borrowed on my signature, Mm -hmm. and. I had put my house up my nose. My house had been foreclosed a year earlier. <laughs> I've, I've heard you say that over the years. Yeah. And every now and then you'll say that out of context with the story. And I can imagine what people are thinking when you're talking about putting your house up your nose. Yeah, board by board, night by night. Um, <laughs> and I had changed all my academic friends and all the couples I was friends with. I traded them in for all the my bar friends and my street urchin friends and my cocaine mm-hmm. buddies and wow my house wow. was a party house and it got really 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 bad so during this time of that really really bad um cocaine use you were still drinking and but you were how did you manage to stay on top of your career and what you were doing uh, in the eight to five job? Well, I didn't manage very well. I had um, been accorded tenure at uh-huh. at the medical school, yeah. um, and that made me relax a little bit. And uh, if you followed my work ethic and my work hours and mm-hmm. my work productivity yeah. from 1980 through the spring of 1988, it's a descending line. And by mm-hmm. 1986, I was, I actually did one of the great sins you can do as a professor. Mm-hmm. I missed a lecture. Oh, no. And that, you know, you don't miss a lecture yeah. unless you're in a coffin someplace. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and people are, around me began to notice. Um, mm-hmm. I had a, we had a laboratory party at, in my lab and I um, got extremely drunk set a mm. fire alarm off, tried to take everybody in my laboratory home mm. uh, to where we could do cocaine and continue. Uh, it was, um, I was certainly not hiding my addiction or my alcoholism. Yeah, I've heard you refer to it over the years as hedonistic behavior, and I think that that's a great, uh, that's a great term for that kind of behavior. It truly was. I, I, I mean, I had no standards of moral and ethics at all. Now, you mentioned earlier that that you didn't realize that or accept or your ego didn't allow to enter into the idea that you were an alcoholic or uh, did you were you starting to connect the problems that you were having in your job and elsewhere with your use of cocaine and and alcohol or how did you reconcile that? Uh, Because of the cocaine and because I used it daily and because Mm -hmm. I ended up I can account for at least a quarter of a million dollars worth of 
using cocaine and alcohol and other party mm -hmm. favors. I ascribed it all to cocaine. And in fact, when I was intervened into treatment, mm -hmm. they s said, you know, tell us about your use of alcohol. And I said, mm -hmm. oh, that's no, alcohol's no problem. I only drink beer and wine. And of course, wow. they smiled knowingly. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went to a meeting every day, and we had a meeting in the treatment center every day. And I introduced myself as I said, I'm Scott, I'm a cocaine addict. Huh. And it wasn't until day 17 that I finally said, Scott, I'm an alcoholic, as I've, I have done every day since. So, so is it safe to say that, that as, as people will in an AA meeting, just to kind of level the playing field, that you were using cocaine alcoholically? Yes. Um, it, the co use of cocaine is requires such focus mm -hmm. and it's so intense that you mm -hmm. don't realize that you're doing it in the bathroom while you're spending four hours at the bar. That mm -hmm. you're sitting at your home with a bunch of party people and everybody's drinking, but we're all fighting for the lines on the mirror. and. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is always present. It's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of taking second chair to the primary drug of choice. So that allowed you to just pass it off as a secondary concern and let's take care of the cocaine and everything will be wonderful? Exactly. And many people who do cocaine to the level mm -hmm. I was doing it would say, well, I really drank to level out. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I would get so intensely high on cocaine that alcohol mm -hmm. would slow me down and allow me to do more co cocaine. I remember saying that a lot. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had the dual addiction, too, although not the cocaine, because I always felt that the high on cocaine value-wise was not as good uh, for, for the price of the cocaine was not as good as other things. So mine was an economic decision to not use cocaine, but I, I had a lot of this, the same issues. You had mentioned intervention, and I, I want to kind of skip to that because it, I guess towards the end, you were saying people were recognizing that you were having a problem. Uh, that's correct. Uh, probably about 1986, there were subtle hints from my colleagues. Um, mm -hmm. They would say things like, are you okay? Or, hey, man, I'm worried about you. How are you doing? Mm -hmm. uh, I would be taking, I was taking trips to Washington as a government consultant four times mm -hmm. a year. And the people I was um, traveling with were very concerned about my behavior. And mm -hmm. I was actually confronted on a couple occasions. You know, why are you late? You missed this yesterday. And i I was making up stories. So uh, hmm. one time I said I had to literally I got so financially just behind. I had to borrow money from one of my laboratory people. And I said that my children were in jail hmm. and I needed to bail them out. And um, so I remember good friends, you know, mm -hmm. uh, constantly putting a little bit of pressure on me to clean up my act. Did you find they were enabling you? Um, I had a couple people who actually were asked to be part of my intervention, hmm. and they mm -hmm. were my best friends, but they were also my drinking buddies. Now, they didn't do uh, cocaine. They didn't party. Yeah. They weren't hypersexual like I was, right, but right. when they were asked to join the intervention team, they said they didn't feel they could do it because they drank so frequently with me. Huh. That's interesting. So things were kind of spiraling downward towards uh, towards the end. I would say it was a very rapid, very hard spiral. Huh. So what did the uh, what did the intervention uh, look like? Well, my institution knew because mm -hmm. um, I'd had a DWI in 1986, and sure. on Good Friday, it was exactly mm -hmm. two years before I got sober. Yeah. And they went to the general counsel and they said, "What are we going to do? He's got tenure. We can't just mm -hmm. fire him." We don't have proof of, you know, any felonies. Mm -hmm. um, and the general counsel said, you know, we can go through a long legal battle to get rid of him or we can just let him get rid of himself. Meaning if we sure. leave him alone, he will eventually self-destruct. Wow. Well, uh, one of my dear colleagues uh, who was at the University of Texas next door uh -huh. said, I can't stand by and watch that happen. So... He asked permission of Baylor to do an intervention on me, but not one mm -hmm. directed by Baylor College of Medicine. Hmm. And I missed the first two. I didn't show up. 
So they, they flew um, one of my major professors from UCLA in. He was advertised. He's scientifically world famous. Right. Professor Michael Hall is coming to Houston wow. to give a seminar. Um, I kept getting prompts from all my friends. Oh, Scott, you got to be at the seminar. Dr. Mm-hmm. Hall's going to be here, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So he came into town, and to secure me, they um, what turned out to be my intervention team took me out to dinner. It was Monday night, the night before mm-hmm. my intervention, mm-hmm. just to make sure I was not going to escape. And, of course, I had my my current girlfriend mm-hmm. with me and yeah. a pocket full of cocaine. And I, I used cocaine throughout dinner, multiple trips to the bathroom and woke up the next morning at 10 a.m. The seminar was at noon. Uh-huh. I said, oh, my God, I've got to be there. And I threw on a pair of jeans and a sweater with a bunch of cigarette holes in mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. As I got to the seminar room, um, it was a little bit before noon. The room had about 450 seats. The room was full. The walls were lined with people. There were 500 people in the mm-hmm, room. Mm-hmm. There was one seat left in the front row, mm-hmm. and um, everybody, my friends were sitting around that seat, and I said, Scott, Scott, come on, we saved you a seat. Mm. So I sat down, hung over, just feeling miserable, mm-hmm. and listened to my mentor, my UCLA mentor, spend 55 minutes glorifying my my research career Mm. at the end of that seminar my mind said you know i've got to get out of here i've got to get home now this is when everybody has left the 400 people have stood up and gone at this point well they're standing up they're standing up okay Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to wheedle my way out of there well at that point this is how clever the interventionist was i'll forever love him his name was roger not uh, they had an administrator run up to me waving a little green piece of paper. Uh-huh. And she ran up to me and she said, you have a very important phone call. Very uh-huh. important phone call. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I puffed up immediately and I said to my friends around me, I have a very important phone call. And they said, well, Scott, that's great. Come on, we'll show you where you can take the phone call. Uh-huh. And they led me to the room... I felt a hand on my back. I was pushed into the room, and my friends followed in. They sat in four chairs. Mr. Knott started the intervention, and that was it. Hmm. Mr. Knott, is he still alive? Or I don't believe so, but the four interventionists were Diana hmm. R., Michael uh-huh. H., uh, uh-huh. Vicki B., right. <laughs> and... Uh, Robert M. And Robert M. I'll forever owe my life to. So so the, they, they do this intervention on you. And then where did you end up? Well, they said they were worried about my health and yeah. they wanted me to go to, ho- to the hospital and be checked out. Sure. And I said what every person who's intervened on said, well, how long has I be there? And they say, well, we don't know, depending on mm-hmm. your health. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, can I go to my lab and get my briefcase? Uh-huh. Uh, thinking of escaping, uh-huh. <laughs> and they said no. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the car was waiting, and we went straight from the seminar room in the office mm-hmm. sure. to West Oak Psychiatric Hospital. And I was offered the choice of either signing in voluntarily or signing in uh, against my will, and they explained the difference, and I said, okay, I'll sign in voluntarily. And Mm. I did, and um, I was put on the on the alcohol recovery unit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the medical director came by shortly after and kicked me in the ankle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew I was coming. They told him my story. Sure. Uh-huh. He said, "Why are you here?" And I said, "Well, I said I guess I have a little problem with cocaine." So we'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying listening to this show, I'd like to invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit bigbookpodcast.com and listen to your heart's content. And share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. Okay, we're back. 
Is it fair to say that your bottom was imposed on you as opposed to you coming to it on your own? Absolutely. Huh. That's interesting. That that's not that's not all that. Well, I guess it's common with people who are in, intervened upon who finally get it. But it's most people hit a bottom somewhere before they try to get help. But your bottom was right adjacent to that help, wasn't it? Well, the the backstory for that is about 1986 when the debts were mounting and I was in mm-hmm. trouble with the bank and. I was uh-huh. borrowing $50,000 just on my signature and all of mm-hmm, that went up mm-hmm. my nose. And sure. I borrowed money from my my sister claiming I owed the IRS money. And mm-hmm. um, I knew I was in trouble um, and mm-hmm. I thought it was cocaine. And I mm-hmm. I would do one evening that I talk about a lot. I, I was just deeply, deeply afraid of continuing to use So I came home about seven o'clock from the lab and I decided I was not going to call my drug dealer. Hmm. So I took the phone. It was an old desk set with the push Mm -hmm. buttons. And I taped it up with duct tape so I couldn't use it. (laughs) And about an hour later, unfortunately, I went to the fridge and there was a little wine left. And after a glass of wine or two, I decided that I needed to call my drug dealer so I took a I took a knife and cut off all of the tape so I could use the telephone and call him. So oh there was God. some awareness that I was in deep trouble. But cocaine addiction is it is beyond my ability as someone who is a who is a neuroscientist. It's beyond my ability to tell you how powerful hmm. that addiction is. So here you are, this hotshot professor going to a psychiatric hospital for alcoholism and cocaine addiction. What was that like? What was that? Ex- How long were you there and what was it like? It was horrible for 17 days as I was in denial about the alcohol. I didn't like it. My kind of people were not there. I didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, uh, they came up to me on day 16, uh, a wonderful counselor of mine, Joanne C. Mm-hmm. put her arm around me and said, Scott, we're really worried about you. You're not doing very well. Uh. If things don't start to go better, if you don't get a sponsor, then we're going to have to have you leave. And Baylor mm-hmm. had put me under a two-year, very restrictive contract mm-hmm. that said if I left treatment early, I would be fired. Hmm. And they had every right to do that, tenure yeah. or not. Yeah. So I went to a meeting that night, uh, Thursday night, College Park Baptist Church. Yeah, I remember that meeting. And I went um, and I heard Miles S. Mm -hmm. uh, tell his story. And I was literally struck with the idea of he told my story. I want him to be my sponsor. And at the end of the meeting, I walked up to him with my knees shaking and said, will you be my sponsor? And he handed me a gave me his phone number and Hmm. So was that your was that your very first AA meeting, or was that the first meeting that you actually listened in and took some action? The latter. We had been to a meeting in the druggy buggy every single night. Uh-huh. Uh, at West Oaks, you went to a meeting every evening, whether it was in the cafeteria or whatever. Yeah, I remember coming in from the outside to go to some of those cafeteria meetings early on. Right. And did you have a period of, of detox, or how did you make it? physically through the first two or three weeks? Well, cocaine doesn't require any significant detox, so I took huh, okay. I took vitamins for a couple of days. But huh. the other significant part of the story is yeah. a very higher-powered moment, um, the moment yeah. that has really set the platform for my recovery in it. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in a meeting at the, the hospital, and it was uh, being led by a young man, Mm-hmm. And uh, I was toxic. I was angry. I was terrified. Mm-hmm. I was alone. I mm-hmm. was alone at a table. Mm-hmm. And it was my 15th or 16th meeting. And during the moment of silence, God entered me in some way. And I said the first prayer I had said since age 14. I was mm-hmm. 44 years old. And I said just spontaneously, I said, God, mm-hmm help the people at this meeting and help them help me. Hmm. And I I remember waking up the next morning with a completely different attitude. That's hmm. the evening I got my sponsor. 
The day after that, I presented my first step to the group I was in. It was mm-hmm. the third time I had presented it. Mm-hmm. I had finally owned up to all my stuff. I passed it. Mm-hmm. I finished mm-hmm. the second and third step in treatment. Um, mm-hmm. I was in treatment for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mm-hmm. had no house. They had foreclosed my home and taken it away. Mm-hmm. So I went to a sober living home called the Landing Point in the Heights. Mm-hmm. Pat Myers, the late Pat Myers, ran that home. I was there for six weeks. Mm -hmm. And by this time, I had been to 90 meetings in 90 days, and I had renewed my commitment to 90 and 90. And I actually moved out of the halfway house, moved in with my then girlfriend, um, Mm -hmm. which lasted two days. And she very rapidly moved me back out. Um, She and her real estate friend found me a house. Uh Uh-huh. It was about 15 miles away from my house in Montrose, the one I uh-huh. put up my nose. Sure. I moved into the lease house, and Howard, I've, I'm sitting in that house today. I've been in that house every day I've been sober, and I'm coming up on 12,000 days. So, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So w- when you were uh, about ready to get out of West Oaks and you were going to your girlfriend's house, what kind of feedback did you get on that from the people that were, that you were leaving? Well, you can imagine the advice. They said, yeah. you know, no, Miles, my sponsor, said no relationships for a year. Uh-huh. And I was completely dedicated to the program. I felt wonderful mm-hmm. after being sober 90 days. Mm-hmm. I was back at Baylor, even as restrictive as the as my contract was. Mm-hmm. I was going to therapy. I was going to meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was having urine drug screens regularly, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I thought I would try this girlfriend thing. And she literally didn't want anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, cocaine addicts who are 90 days sober are crazier than, yeah, I can you know, imagine. whatever. So During that time, while you were doing 90 meetings in 90 days, were you in IOP as well? Only at the halfway house. There was, Only at the halfway house. Yeah, IOP okay. hadn't hit hit Houston very much at the time. Oh, okay. But yeah. between therapy and meetings and working the steps with my sponsor, uh-huh. I was I had already signed up to do a retreat in the fall. Uh-huh. I had had an incredibly emotional experience during a, a an event at while I was in treatment with my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, that is also the second level of the pra- platform of my recovery. And mm. um, she literally busted me in front of about 60 people. So I was really committed to recovery and moving into the to my own lease home mm-hmm. uh, w- was something I was willing to do. I didn't know how yeah. alone and lonely I would be, but sure. I filled the time by going to as many meetings as I could. And yeah. Uh, being part of the Alder Street Monday Night Men's Group was tremendously helpful. So, it sounds like you had quite a bit of ego shattering during that time. I was curious as to how important sponsorship was to you in the early days, uh, as well as that ego deflation that's so necessary for us. Well, my ego deflation happened through the pathway of humiliation yeah. to humility. Um, uh-huh. And my daughter's uh, actions during family week, Mm -hmm. the fact that I was in a home group where everybody had a sponsor. Uh You often came to the meeting with your sponsor. There was a line of men who uh, my sponsor's sponsor was there. My sponsor's grand sponsor was there. I became friends with a with a man who eventually came my sponsor after Miles moved to Austin. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was surrounded by by men who had integrity, mm-hmm. uh, who believed in in working the steps and really working the steps, who believed in sharing from the heart and not mm-hmm. hiding anything, dropping the mask. Mm-hmm. I was gaining uh, traction back at Baylor. I was showing mm-hmm. up for work. My mm-hmm. two children uh, were back in my life. Mm-hmm. So I was really on a pink cloud. I can imagine. Looking back at that point, while you were on that pink cloud, did you give it much thought that this was going to be a long-term proposition, or were 
you thinking like I thought early on, okay, I'll, I'll do this for a period of time, but then I'll get to the point at which I won't have to do it? Did you have that occur to you at all? Well, I was pretty willing not to ever do cocaine again. I, mm-hmm. I, it, it had been such a destroyer of soul and life that I was... Mm. But I, I did have in my mind for probably the first nine months or so that I would reach a point where I could have a drink and drink safely. And it was only through working the steps and reviewing the fact that I started drinking at 12 and had a, I got thrown in jail in Fort Lauderdale at age mm-hmm. 14 for drinking and, mm. and oh. had some horrific experiences in prep school and college. And I realized I was a, as destroyed by alcohol as I was by cocaine. So were you identifying yourself early on in AA? Were you identifying yourself as an alcoholic and a or were you the cocaine addict who wouldn't talk about alcohol? How did that look in the early days? After day 17, and every day since, I just say, I'm Scott B., and I'm an alcoholic. I'm, yeah. You were never one of those andas. No. They're all, it's all an addiction. It's all yeah. neurochemistry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't yeah. see it. I, when people say I'm an alcoholic and an addict, mm-hmm. My ego says, you know, you ought to stop and tell them that that's redundant. <laughs> yeah. Well, given the way you, given the trajectory from your intervention into a treatment center, do you think you could have gotten sober in AA without treatment? Do you think the AA would have been sufficient, or did you need that treatment first as a gateway into AA? Without the intervention, without 90 days of supervision, mm-hmm. without a two-year contract from Baylor College of Medicine, I'd be dead. Yeah, yeah. Okay. When Early on in treatment, when they said, you know, you were about to lose your house, I said, well, that's all right. I'll get another one. Mm-hmm. I'll move in with my friends. Mm-hmm. I was fully prepared to couch surf with my cocaine buddies. And wow. So I, was, I would have been on the street. Yeah. Um, and the street was not a very safe place in Montrose in yeah. the late 80s. Especially so. in those days. So... What were the early weeks and months in AA like for you, having to go to these rooms with all of this this cross-section, this socioeconomic and intellectual cross-section of people, uh, this hotshot PhD <laughs> expert on the brain who should be able to handle all this without AA? How did you, what was AA like for you during that time? Well, I, uh, from day 17 on, I had a higher power. Um, Interestingly, my first hour of power was the statue of Abraham Lincoln huh. because I wanted that kind of a father figure in my life. Mm-hmm. But I was pretty committed to being um, as humble as I could. I didn't mm-hmm. advertise myself as as a important medical person. Wow. Um, I went to retreat the day I was six months sober, and that retreat closed on Sunday. It was September first, nineteen eighty eight, and. I stood in the room with 72 men holding hands, and I looked around the room, Mm -hmm. and there were men there from age 18 to age 88. Mm -hmm. We were all shapes and sizes. Uh, Some came in Rolls Royces, and some came on skateboards. Right, yeah. And I realized I was just one of them. That's an amazing realization, and it's one that I think if a man or woman can come to that realization early enough... You had that spiritual experience. You had that, I guess, that sudden upheaval that Bill Wilson talks about in the in the big book versus the gradual awakening, which was more the case for me. I, I would have liked to think I got it all at once, the realization that God was working. But for me, I, I had to, I, I was just a disbeliever until I believed. And that took the better part of uh, a year and a half and working all 12 steps till I got to that point. But when I hear people, you know, having that immediate sense of God working in their lives, that's a that's an extraordinary thing and uh, amazing to see. It was. It, it all happened within 24 hours. Wow. It was helped a lot by the italics mm. in the third step. Mm-hmm. I could choose my own higher power, oh, Abe yeah. Lincoln. Abe Lincoln. And the word care. Yeah. Turned my will and my life over to the care. God. So I invented a, you know, a giant a caring giant named Abe Lincoln is my higher power to replace the father need that I had. And uh, my higher power has evolved a bit since then. But yeah, um, that's really awesome and, and inspiring in a way, I think, for people who 
wonder, will they get to that point if they stick around long enough? So this is the point at which, in the telling of a story, most people get, there's about five minutes left in the speaker meeting at this point, okay? Because the most exciting and interesting things, I think intuitively we feel like we've got going is the how it was and the what happened part of our story. But you've been sober three plus decades and a lot's gone on since then. And I'd like to kind of turn to what sobriety had looked like in the first five or 10 years, maybe into the the next decade. What, What were milestones for you in the recovery? Where were places that you hit roadblocks, where you gained a realization that you might not make it or that, yes, you would make it. Could you go into that a little bit? Well, I, I'm, I don't know whether I'm proud to say this or I'm embarrassed to say this, but I've had a, a truly blessed 32-plus years of recovery. Mm-hmm. I, uh, in 1988, I was a drug addict at Baylor College of Medicine. Mm-hmm. I became a senior dean in upper administration at Baylor in 1993. So I went, in five years, went from drug addict to dean. Mm -hmm. Uh, I began doing service. I took intervention training. Mm -hmm. I was helping other people. Mm -hmm. I was the go-to person at Baylor College of Medicine if somebody had an alcohol or a drug problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved being a dean. I got heavily involved in service. I ran a, a ranch retreat for families whose children had cancer. Mm-hmm. I began joining, I bo- joined the board of the council mm-hmm. on alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, I really felt like I was very effective in service. So I had found, I had traded my medical research career in for a career of service based upon all of my academic training. Mm-hmm. It was a perfect marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 19, uh, in 2012, I was thinking of retiring from Baylor and I was asked by some colleagues in AA to, if I would consider founding the Hope and Healing Center at the St. Martin's Church. Mm-hmm. And um, I prayed about that and took that job. And I'm very proud of, of founding that now highly successful organization. And it's an incredible facility. I mean, I've, I've gotten to know the people over there. I've gone to meetings there. It really is truly a, uh, an exceptional facility for us in the program and other people outside the program from the standpoint of mental health. And my, uh, I'm very close to both my children. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a, both confronted me about what a horrible father I was and also are daily grateful that they have their father back. When did they confront you? When, when did that, did that happen at different times or was that all part of their work or your work? How did that come along? Well, my daughter did it uh, at about week four in treatment. Oh, huh. okay. And that's that platform story that really cemented my yeah. my commitment to the program. Yeah. And my son came along very shortly after that. We're the best of buddies. We're sailing buddies. And I've renewed a friendship with actually both of my ex-wives. I've skipped over the fact that I got married in recovery Mm -hmm. and got divorced in recovery. And Mm -hmm. uh, I've now retired from from the Hope and Healing Center and from Baylor College of Medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a a private consulting practice where I work with families and do interventions mm-hmm. and referral to treatment. And I'm actually winding that down. So that's amazing. I've had a really blessed recovery. Well, so your AA work in the early days, even though you were already working in the field of teaching and research and that sort of thing, is it a, is it a fair statement to say that your experience in AA led you to that where you might not have been led there otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the gifts from my higher power is to be intensively trained mm-hmm. in in um, the workings of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the one who gave the lectures on the neurophysiology and neurochemistry of addiction to the medical student. Hmm. While you were using and, and drinking yourself? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a tape of me lecturing while I'm high on cocaine. <laughs> And uh, so to have that kind of background and to have, I mean, I, I have an intense research project with one particular alcoholic uh-huh. over the course now of 77 years, and that's myself. Yeah, yeah, I get so, that. I get that. I, I was curious how how working in the field and all these uh, extracurricular things that you're doing, 
How did they affect your AA program with regard to pride and ego and humility? How does, how does your disease feel about all this other stuff that you're doing out there? Well, I, my ego is still uh, rampant. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm still, one of the things I say frequently is I like to present myself as the Wizard of Oz and what I really feel like mm-hmm. is the little guy behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. And the truth is I've come out from behind the curtain. I'm open and honest as I can be about my addiction and my recovery. But mm-hmm. um, there's always a little bit of a, of a judgment inside me about... And do I really belong here? Are the people in this meeting, you know, do they live up to me? And um, I've still got an ego that burns inside. Is that something you've noticed burning all along? Or have, have you noticed it more in the later years of your sobriety? Probably early on it was worse. Uh-huh. And, and now I've just, I mean, I love people helping people, whether they're trust fund babies uh-huh. or whether they're living on the streets. And because I recognize that after March 1st of 1988, without the intervention, I would have been on the streets for the rest of that year. Yeah. I was curious if you could go back in time, let's say 35 years or more, what would you tell the Scott at that point, based on what you know now, that would make a difference to him? Well, in hindsight, what that man needed was assurance that he was okay. Mm Mm-hmm that he didn't have to wear masks, mm-hmm. that he had not really been abandoned by his mother and father. Yeah. And I did a lot of therapy work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did the John Bradshaw re- rescue your inner child mm-hmm. to the point where when my inner child saw me coming, he ran away and <laughs> said, you know, stop, we've done this 10 <laughs> times. Uh, I was intensive cognitive behavioral therapy I did uh, two and a half years of weekly psychodrama. I have explored my relationships with self, with my mother and my father, to the point where I feel just completely comfortable about being who I am in my own skin. And you project that. There's a kind of a quiet confidence to that that I always see in you and a gentleness that can only come out of doing that kind of work. The thing I think that's important with you saying that in this format that we're in today, uh, talking about it, is that AA is but the beginning for some of us in the self-revelatory process. And my story is very much like yours in the sense that After I got sober, I was open to things like psychiatry for clinical depression that I had resisted all along and drank and used drugs over. And and I I still have clinical depression, but it's treatable and I I can manage it. But all of the other work that I would have been completely resistant to, AA opened me up to it. And there were a lot of people along the way, Scott, maybe some of them did this with you, who said, you don't need to go do that. You know, AA's got everything you need. Uh, You know, you don't have to go. uh, You you don't need to take antidepressants because when you get depressed, just sing a happy song or, you know, uh, write about it or, or, you know, go out and run 20 miles or whatever, which isn't which isn't the way that you deal with clinical depression. It's the way you deal with the blues. But there's a lot of advice in AA, and I'm not, I'm not impugning the, the integrity of the program. I'm just saying that some of the most well-meaning people can take a look at what's going on with an individual and kind of jump to a conclusion. Well, there's certainly a lot of people who poo-poo uh, things other than meetings. Yeah. In fact, they even poo-poo people who went to, who went to treatment. Mm. Hmm. Um, I'm a I'm a medical researcher at my core, mm-hmm. and therefore I wanted to research every adjunct to my own recovery that I mm-hmm. could, mm-hmm. including therapy, including retreats, including psychodrama, including um, you know virtually everything. Mm. Uh, I took great pleasure in literally finding something new to try, like psychodrama sure. or like. Let's go to another retreat mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. 
Let's go on a sober vacation and learn from the real gurus that are speakers at those meetings. And You were a regular at that, weren't you? Didn't you go on those sober vacations on a regular basis? Yeah, I did about a dozen of them and formed a really deep, rich friendship for, for about 10 years with Paul Oliger, the author yeah. of Dr. Addict and Alcoholic. So. so there is life after AA, as you and I both know. But one of the, the difficulties I think I find, and I, I want to get your perspective on this, when I'm talking to people who are relatively new, whether they're young and new or older and new, I almost feel like the fact that I've been sober as long as I have and the fact that I'm, I know a lot of people and a lot of people know me, that it, it almost becomes a barrier to people either wanting to approach me or if, if I approach them to them wanting to hear what I have to say because, you know, man, I'm at two weeks and you're at 32 years. How can you possibly identify? How, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm always, um, I'm, I'm always really, really, really warmed when young men with two weeks reach out to mm -hmm. me. And I I'm sure they see me as a father figure or as a grandfather sure. figure. Mm -hmm. And they see something in me that I don't see in hmm. me. They see someone who's kind and comfortable and warm, and I don't see that in me. I mm -hmm. still see myself as ego-driven, selfish, and self-centered. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But those young men um, have come to me for help, and mm -hmm. um, I love working with them early and then passing them on to a good sponsor. So. Mm -hmm. That's been very rewarding. And mm -hmm. the love that I feel for my own children uh, and now my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren <laughs> has been very rewarding. That's, that's, so. that's, really, that's really wonderful. I, I, I wanted to ask you if you could identify for our listeners a couple of times, a couple, maybe three times in your sobriety where sobriety and AA pulled you out of the fire or out of the, away from the abyss. Well, the early experiences, the uh, the realization that I, I was living in my phone, own foreclosed yeah. home and having the miracle of my intervention, I mean, that was something that pulled oh, yeah, me out of, of my abyss. Yeah. My, daughter's, um, my daughter's literal pulling back of the curtain during family week at, at four weeks at West Oaks mm -hmm. was a major moment. Mm -hmm. um, I... Um, being really grounded in my own higher power early on, mm -hmm. um, traveling um, on those sober vacations. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I first heard um, I su heard Susie R. tell her story, mm -hmm. and I learned about the story I tell about the addict holding on to the rope yeah. above the burning pit. Yeah. Yeah. And I was on a sober vacation in St. Louis or St. Lucia, uh -huh. the island of St. Lucia. And I heard the wheelbarrow story. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, so there have been moments along the way um, having a sponsor um, whose name was William Perez. Yeah. He's long gone. He's a but good man. Who died with over 50 years mm -hmm. sober, who I talked to every single day of my recovery. Oh. So there were always moments, Howard, that wouldn't let me get to the abyss. You were smack dab in the middle Middle, of the, middle herd. of the herd, and it's hard to get picked off. I, I wondered for for the listeners who may not know that story about the wheelbarrow. Uh, would you mind recounting that so they can get a picture? I, I just love it. I think it's a great great story. Well, Michael H. and Will K. tell it better than I do. But the original story goes that there's an alcoholic who is going to a lot of meetings, uh -huh. and he's proselytizing, and he's telling everybody how great God uh -huh. is and he's an advocate for God and I know God and God is good at, and people are just getting sick and tired of him <laughs> proselytizing uh, like he knows God personally yeah. and um, people are getting pretty sick of it and one time after a particularly obnoxious presentation of I know God and you don't all of a sudden he finds himself on the rim of the Grand Canyon on the north rim of the Grand Canyon and it's getting dark and the wind is picking up and there's clearly a storm coming. And God's voice appears and says, hey, alcoholic, I hear you've been talking about me. I hear you, you're proselytizing on my behalf. You're my missionary, my, my apostle. I guess you just know everything about me. And 
the alcoholic says, is just stunned mm -hmm. that he's under the voice of God. And he says, oh, yes, 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 I believe in you. I, you know, uh, you are everything. I totally believe in mm -hmm. you. So the higher power then says, well, look over the rim of the Grand Canyon. Do you see that big cable that stretched one mile all the way across the, the canyon above the canyon that is one mile down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the higher, the alcoholic said, I see that cable. Suddenly God appears holding a wheelbarrow, a little tiny wheelbarrow with a metal wheel on it. And he says, do you believe in me enough to believe that I could put this wheelbarrow on that cable and wheel it across, all the way across to the south rim of the canyon? And the alcoholic says, oh, my God, yes, of course I believe in that. You're, a, you're the higher power. There's a long pause, and God looks at the alcoholic. The only way that God can look into your mm -hmm. soul, and he says, if you really believe, get in. <laughs> and it's the moment of yeah, truth. Yeah. It, it is, is, you know, and it always reminds me mm -hmm. Uh, to get all the way in the wheelbarrow, one foot out ain't going to yeah, work. That's that. <laughs> Half measures avail us nothing. So the final final question I want want to just ask you now that you're coming up on 33 years, could you come up with one statement about these past 33 years that would sum up your experience in Alcoholics Anonymous? I'm 77 years old. Mm -hmm. I've lived the richest possible life one could mm -hmm. live. But I will say that there is nothing, nothing more important to me. Not, there is no medical research accomplishment. There is no service mm -hmm, accomplishment mm -hmm. more important than getting sober, staying sober, and getting and staying in recovery. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to end, too. I really appreciate your doing this. Uh, and I do it because I, I love it, and I love the people in the program. And I love you, Scott. You've, you've been an inspiration to me over all the years I've known you, and we're, we're compatriots. But you've also, you've, you've helped me in some situations where I needed some good orderly directions, some, some sound advice just on Living life matters, and uh, I'll, I'll always, always be truly grateful to you for that. And again, many thanks for being on the show today. Howard, you're most welcome. What a privilege and what an honor. Thank you, Scott. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I'm grateful to Scott B. for sharing his story and to all of you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, friends, and loved ones. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and other podcast providers. I'd be super grateful if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>